0: as a baseline I sort of like the spirit of what they're trying to do with this and the reality of it is is that you know there's a good sort of cohort of options and it's priced in a way that can be additive to other higher profile passes but honestly these things certainly these resorts are good for the industry they provide what I think is is probably an important counterpoint to some of the other options out there but you know for from a business sense right now with half of our traffic being you know physically unable to get into the resort and then You know, a a good conservatively 30 to 40% of our traffic on the U.S. side facing some sort of quarantine or or travel restriction. There's certainly room to add some folks into the experience
1: this year. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. Yes, this is real. Jay Peak is on the Indy Pass and we're going to hear all about it today. Before we do that, a reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com. And if you're listening on iTunes and you like the pod, drop me a review. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook at the Storm Skiing Journal. Each of those platforms is going to give you a slightly different experience, so check them all out if you're so inclined. The Storm Skiing Podcast is brought to you in part by Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a biannual, large-format print title celebrating mountain culture. Head over to mountaingazette.com and enter code GOHIRE10 for 10% off subscriptions. Sign up by November 1st to make sure you get the first issue. Use code EASTCOAST, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers which make great art for your home office or living room. The Mountain Gazette returns in November in print form for the first time in eight years. These issues will sell out. Grab your subscription today over at MountainGazette.com. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 27, Steve Wright, President and General Manager of Jay Peak, Vermont. If you've been to Jay Peak, you already know. There's nothing else like it in the Northeast. When it's good, it's great really great, and it's good a lot. The most snow in the region and an endless glade network add up to a special experience if you can hit it right. But everything else has been working against Jay for the past several years. The previous owner lost the mountain in an EB-5 visa scandal, and it's been under the oversight of court-appointed receiver Michael Goldberg for years. The mountain is for sale, but the process has been slow. And with the Canadian border closed, the mountain is looking at losing up to half its normal business this season. Vermont travel restrictions for folks from neighboring states aren't going to help much either. But if you don't watch the headlines and just care about the skiing, you wouldn't notice anything was amiss. And that's because the man in charge of the place after the scandal broke has absolutely crushed it. Steve Wright has done basically everything right, even as everything has gone wrong around him. And the big news dropping this morning is the latest thing Steve's done that the ski world is celebrating. Jay Peak joined the Indy Pass. That means that the best mountain in Vermont is not on the Epic Pass. It's not on the Icon Pass. It's on the People's Pass. The $199 Indy Pass will give you two days at Jay this year and two days each at 56 other mountains. The deal is almost too good to comprehend. So check this interview out and then go scoop up your indie Pass so you can go see the place for yourself. Let's go. My guest today is the president and general manager of J Peak Vermont. The mountain has 81 trails and more than 100 acres of gladed terrain on a 2,153 foot vertical drop. With an average annual snowfall of 359 inches, J Peak gets more snow than any other ski area in the Northeastern United States. He has been at the Mountain since 2004 and has been general manager since 2016. Steve Wright is my guest. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having us on, Stu. So first of all, Steve, we're living through some very strange times here. How have you and your family been holding up these past seven months?
0: Uh, uh, well, thank you for asking. Um, yeah, that's always the first the first. Uh, uh, the first kind of place of focus is how, how are people doing personally for for me we um you know i had an interesting situation here that my daughter was in uh was in italy um right around the first week in march and you know she was over there on an exchange and playing soccer over there and the, they closed things down and we got her home and when we did that uh we quarantined her at my house about 15 miles away and the rest i moved mm-hmm. the rest of the family up here so and then I spent and then when she was done with the quarantine she came up here and my entire family was here on campus for about uh about 6 or 7 months um while oh, wow. the the, the stay at home uh, order was issued by our governor and so we wanted to hunker down up here so we wouldn't be too far from uh from the mountain
1: Are you planning to do that through the winter?
0: No, we've we've since moved back um you know we're back down in uh, in Newport, but um, you know based on what the guidance ends up doing as we as we move forward here, it might put us in a position where we move back.
1: To be honest with you. All right. Well, it sounds like you have a plan and some options, which is good. And glad to hear everyone's healthy and you were able to get her home. Uh, let's get right into today's huge news. JP Peak has signed on as an IndyPass partner that gives all IndyPass holders two days at J with no blackouts. I want to stress that and two days each at 56 other partner resorts for $199. Jay instantly becomes the Pass's headliner mountain in the Northeast. Why was the Indy Pass a good fit for JP?
0: Well, you know, I've, I've been talking with uh, with Doug for, you know, about a year. You know, we first started having these conversations last year at this time. And, you know, for a couple of different reasons, it didn't make sense. It wasn't the right fit for us at at that point, but given the, you know, the realities of our Operating environment at this point, um, you know, we we thought that you know after some a few conversations back and forth about some of the specifics relative to the program, we got into an agreement in this uh, on this you know relatively relatively quickly thereafter and decided to uh, to jump in. I don't you know at the end of the day I don't, I'm not really sure what the redemption rate is going to be like up here for this product. I mean, there's still you know the vagaries of of Vermont travel restrictions that um, that skiers and and snowboarders here in the east are going to have to contend with. I think, you know, in all likelihood. And I, you know, talked with some of the, my my colleagues that are on the pass, and I'm sort of reasoning with them that, you know, that this might help unit sales, and it likely will help drive, you know, additional redemptions at at some of the uh, at some of the maybe either southern Vermont or non-Vermont uh, New England resorts that are part of the program. Uh, but we'll see you know we'll we'll see what um what it means and really the position that we're in the operating environment that we're in at this point, you know if, if, even if we saw a uh, a modest increase in in some day tickets and some visitors to this program, it would be a uh, it would be a success,
1: yeah, I think that's a good point, Steve. you know Jay's the headliner, they'll buy it for jay, but Magic might be three hours closer, and, and maybe they're not familiar with Magic. Maybe they say, well, I got this pass. We're going up to Jay for a weekend in February, but well, let me see what Magic's all about and get some extra visitors and a little extra recognition up there. So um, what was it that pushed this deal to happen? Because IndyPass announced their new partners back in May for this year, and then they added a couple more in September. This is a bit of a late season ad. What was it that catalyzed this, this late agreement?
0: Yeah, I mean it's a good question. I mean as a baseline, I sort of, you know, we sort of like the the spirit of what they're trying to do with this and the and the reality of it is is that, you know, there's a good sort of cohort of options and it's priced in a way that can be additive to other, you know, other higher profile passes, but honestly, these things, you know, these certainly these resorts are good for the industry. They they provide a um what I think is is probably an important counterpoint. Um To some of the other options out there, but you know, from a business sense, right now, with half of our traffic being, you know, physically unable to get into the resort, and then you know, a a good, you know, conservatively 30 to 40 percent of our traffic on the U.S. side facing some sort of, um, some sort of quarantine or, or travel restriction. Uh, there's certainly room to add some folks into into the experience this year. I think w- one of the reasons I've been hesitant to, to jump onto any of these other partner passes, and we've been approached by by, um, by many folks, is you know on one hand the experience here is the experience. We feel pretty good about the numbers that are here, and the and uh, the way that you can navigate this resort even on a busy weekend is not is not painful. Uh, so we're hesitant to to add volume into that. And one of the other things is that given our our state of ownership at this point or our our state of of lack of ownership at this point yeah. um we we really don't want to muddy the waters with our season pass audience right we don't want to jump on one pass one year and then the next year it's a it's a different pass and then when full ownership comes through we're we're yet on a different pass so we wanted to wanted to try to keep a a sense of normalcy for that crowd uh, given everything that they've been through here the last 5 6 years
1: so, is this a long- term deal?
0: Well, at this point, no, at this point it's a it's a one year deal. Um, it seems like all of the deals <laughs> that, that that we've been exposed to here are short term deals at this point, but you know we'll we'll take it and we'll see where it goes. I think that, like I said, the redemptions are likely to be skewed this year and maybe not really representative of what this pass can do, uh, given the travel environments. but you know we'll take it a year at a time, we'll see where we're at next year.
1: So you mentioned your season pass holders. One of the big benefits of being an Indie Pass partner is that your season pass holders can now add an Indie Pass onto their season pass for just $129. This opens up some great terrain for them, both here in the Northeast. You have three other mountains there in Vermont. You have Bolton Valley of Suicide 6. You have Magic, but also Cannon next door in New Hampshire, which is a tremendous mountain. Uh, and also a ton of access out West. And, and these aren't these places like your Vail, your Snowbird that everyone's heard of, but they're, they're still enormous, a couple thousand acres, big vertical drops, lots of snow. So these are good destinations if you want to get out west. How big of a consideration was that, this benefit for your season pass holders, when you were weighing whether to join the Indy Pass?
0: Well, I, th- I think it's great for our season pass holders. I, I, I don't necessarily, given the timing of how and when we're joining we don't really think that it's going that the addition of us on the Indy Pass is going to be used as a means of incenting additional J peak pass purchases, right? Because um, you know, that those deadlines have come and gone. What what we think it's more likely to do is to be a nice, you know, additive piece as, as you mentioned. And, you know, even sort of past the, you know, the physicality of some of these mountains that are on the Indy Pass, which are great. You know, it's more for me personally, and for the folks here, it's, um, it's more the spirit of, of, you know, what these other mountains are about. You know, JD at, at Cannon and and Jeff at Magic and, and Chris Blombeck at uh, at Pat's Peaks specifically, friends of mine, uh, and I have sort of talked offline about it. And it's, you know, the way that they choose to run those places. There's there's definitely a kind of connective tissue to the way that we do it here. So it, it'll be a familiar feel um, to the way that those mountains. Uh, operate for our pass holders and we think that
1: that's uh, that's important as well so your pass holders actually already got a nice little bonus when you stuck the pass up there this year two free days at saddleback which is really exciting that that mountain's coming back online and they get those two days Uh, saddleback pass holders also get two days at jay Uh, how did you arrange this deal steve and why did you want to build in this extra benefit for your pass holders
0: well you know they came to us and, and started to ask ask those questions and i think that they've they felt comfortable in, in asking because they've seen us do things um independently with, with uh places like Pat's Peak whose pass holders get discounts here in the past uh with Mad River Glen when they've had to shut down because of weather we would make their passes valid uh up at yeah. up at Jay. That happened a few years ago. Um and they I think they realized that our the operating sensibility have that we have right here and the ownership reality gives us an awful lot of flexibility to say yes to things like that. Plus, you know, mm-hmm. like I was saying before, you know, it's this spirit of kind of you know collegial support for a for a brand that hopefully becomes relevant again and and really could use the use the support. I mean, we're we're rooting for them for sure.
1: Yeah, how good is it to see Saddleback coming back online? I'm I'm really excited about that one. Um, do you think we could see more reciprocal partnerships like this between Jay and other independent mountains?
0: Yeah, I mean. Again, it's it's connected back into what's the reality of our, of our ownership uh, environment at the time. But, you know, I, I sort of look for reasons to say yes to these sorts of things. Uh, so I, I think the answer to that question would be yes as a result of that.
1: So in addition to your J-only season pass, skiers can buy up to a Burke combo pass for an extra $260. Uh, the mountains once shared common ownership. That is no longer the case. But you have kept that pass. Talk about Jay's relationship with Burke and why that past still makes sense for you.
0: I think the geography of it makes a lot of sense. You know, as the, as the crow flies, we're about 45 minutes from there, you know, drive time, maybe, maybe an hour, a little more than that. So there's a physicality again of, of space that makes sense for us. We, we, um, we share a back of the house sort of financial accounting and, and sort of a numbers warehousing relationship with them. And from a, uh, managerial relationship. The the J team manages their their HR, their accounting, uh, and some of their more global back of the house systems like Senrez and IT. Um, so that's to, that's the extent of it. In terms of operations, you know they make all their own calls, and you know Kevin Mack runs that place really well. He has a nice team in there, and um, you know we talk pretty frequently. But from an operative perspective, they're on uh,
1: they're on their own. Yeah, Kevin Mack was on the podcast last year. Uh, and and I think Burke is facing the same set of challenges as Jay, as far as they get a lot of business from Canada. Why don't you get on the phone with Kevin after this, uh, Steve, and, and and tell him to jump on the Indy Pass with you.
0: I can put the brakes on this right now and give him a call if you, if you want. <laughs> we'll see what we can do with that. They they get a bit less uh, they get a bit less uh, Canadian traffic in the winter. That region sees an awful lot of Canadian traffic uh, for Kingdom Trails in the summer. In the winter, it's a it's a little bit less, but you know. Like we like we said before, I mean, tell me what the operating environment is next year, and, and you, I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that happen.
1: But yeah, it's, it's funny, though, because, you know, we said this big announcement, of course, skiers just always want more more and more, just push for more. So um, anyway, happy to have Jay on it. Uh, I just want to confirm that that Jay and Burke combo pass still includes the two saddleback days and the ability to buy up to the Indy Pass, even though Burke is not an Indy Pass member and does not have that saddleback partnership.
0: Yeah, 100%. As long as um, as long as you have Jay on your pass through any sort of combination there with Burke, you're uh, you're all set for both Saddleback and uh, and the Indy piece.
1: So Jay was one of the first mountains in the Northeast to guarantee no questions asked refunds if skiers felt uncertain or uncomfortable skiing this season. The deadline for that, I believe, was October 1st. What does your current season pass guarantee look like, Steve?
0: Um, at this at this point, the folks that are with us um, are with us, right? The the nuance is a little bit twofold, that if if when the season starts um, and you're from an area that can't come in without quarantine, we'll still refund you um, 100% or, or we'll push it to next year so you can lock in the rate, whatever you want to do. Um, and if your city or county that you're living in goes to red or yellow after the season starts and you've already used it we will prorate um, we will prorate that number predicated on how much of the season has expired. And the same will hold true if for whatever reason we have to close.
1: And so going back to March or April, whenever you set this policy up, what made you get out ahead of this thing and guarantee those passes so early? Because there was there was some question about whether the industry was going to do it. And and a lot of the larger mounds held out for a while, but you got out, right out in front of it and said, we're guaranteeing this. What made you do that?
0: Well, I mean, we have that relationship with our with our pass holders that they sort of expect us to do the right thing, right? And the right thing inevitably for us is for both myself and the, the management team here is how, how would we want to be treated in a similar situation? Most of the time you're successful with that kind of, you know, keeping that, that sort of thinking in the front of your brain. Um, and it's what we default to a lot is, you know, what would the expectation be if we were a consumer or a, or a guest in this, in this situation and how would we want to be treated? And for us, it's always a, you know, for as much as, you know, we're, we're short term impacted by lack of ownership. We really try to take a longer term view of the relationship with, with the guests and really not react too aggressively about finances in the short term. If, if a decision is is better pinged to a long term decision, I mean, obviously we're not, you know, we're not managed by the street. We're not a we're not a public company, so we can take that view. I'm not being uh, I'm not being um, you know damning of a of a company that needs to make shorter term decisions, but it's that's just our
1: reality. Yeah, well, you're you're backing that up pretty well with your actions. Uh, in that spirit, on October 10th, you announced that Jay would be refunding all passes purchased by Canadians. Uh, J.P. could already outlined pass protections against continued border shutdowns, as you just articulated. Uh, you promised to issue prorated credits in the event pass holders were legally barred from traveling there. But why did you decide to refund all the passes now rather than wait to see how the border restrictions would evolve?
0: Mostly because I've I've been on uh, and worked with uh, the Vermont Restart Committee here. And I've been in, in, in the state of Vermont. And I've been on countless conversations with Senator Leahy and Congressman Welch here in Vermont. Uh, Since April, and we know that the border is not opening anytime soon. We could kick that can down the road all we wanted to, um, but there's a reality here that we're dealing with: with case infections rising in our destination and drive markets here in the U.S. and seeing those those case counts jumping in Ontario and and you know Montreal, Quebec City, Um, and and knowing that, you know, honestly, it was it was tough to to hold on to. Several thousand dollars of a, of a pass holder's money when they've entrusted us to do the right thing. I mean, Canada has been hit by the virus hard as well. There are tons of people out of work up there, and you know, having a thousand bucks in your, back in your pocket is, is meaningful, especially knowing that ultimately the resort's going to do the right thing on pricing if the border reopens. I mean, like I said, we've tried to take a, a longer view of that relationship with our guests and specifically our seasoned pass holders um, who, you know, after that. The EB five turbulence; those guys and 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 folks really stuck with us, and, and I kind of feel like we owe it to them at every opportunity to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and they they do the same to us; they give us that benefit of the doubt that we're going to do the right thing. So we we sort of have to.
1: And how's the reaction been from those Canadian guests to that decision?
0: Uh, it's been it's been really positive. I would say that you know of the if we look at their. That index on a hundred percent scale, I'd say eighty percent of them have asked for the money back, twenty percent have pushed it um, and they've been very very thankful i mean it's for them this really isn't a financial piece as much as it is kind of an emotive piece for them i mean we're we're given fifty percent of our of our traffic comes from Canada and up, and those Canadians have been coming here for years this is a this is a major disruption to their winter. Um, Not only from the fact that they like to come here and ski, but many are property owners. Uh, They have cross-border relationships with family and friends that they're not going to be able to see. And um, it's upsetting for them, for sure.
1: So help us understand this, 50%, that's a huge number. How important are these Canadian skiers, not just to that business component, but culturally, to, to the social fabric of the mountain? How much do they contribute?
0: Yeah, that that's the that's a tougher part to put a percent index against. It's easy to say, okay, from a business perspective, fifty percent of the dollars are Canadian dollars, but from that social fabric perspective it's you know, anecdotally it's a lot more. I mean it's impossible to quantify, but I can tell you, you know, I've I've gotten hundreds of communications either across social platforms or emails or phone calls. Uh, and our pass holders, our homeowners, the vacationers up in Canada are are feeling it and um, that relationship which which makes them feel something feel uh, feel something to the extent where they're willing to reach out and tell me how they feel um, is at the heart of, of what makes jp special and the relationship between those Canadians and jp very very special and and um, you know that's why ultimately we make good des- we, we try to make the best decision we can on their behalf
1: so a lot of mountains have been seeing actually increased past sales due to people fleeing the major metropolitan areas to get out into the country. You've seen big jumps in real estate and past sales. Have you seen anything similar up at Jay? I, I realize a lot of your business is cut off, but have you seen a lot of people coming from the South?
0: Well, if you look at just in terms of past sales, right, that our first deadline, Christ, I've had so many deadlines. I forget how many, which ones are out there, but the, the August deadline, which was really the the one we had kicked, the, kicked down the road a little bit to see what the border was going to do. I mean, we were... We were double-digit percentages ahead in season pass sales at that point, and we were sitting around scratching our head going, what are these people thinking about at this point? But I think, you know, like every other resort did, we integrated these um, relaxed cancellation policies as a means to get people to raise their hand and buy their passes, right? And it worked. It certainly worked for us. It worked for lots of resorts, like you mentioned, uh, saw increases. So we were – we were happy at that point, but still, even, even back in August, you know, the handwriting was there about this border. So we Mm didn't, we didn't get too excited. And to that extent, we didn't cash any of the
1: checks either. So that that (laughs) that says a lot. So you've done some fun things to incentivize past buyers. One was the 10 years of J contest. And I believe you announced the winner of that past Friday. Can you talk about what that contest was, why you did it and who won?
0: Um, I can't tell you who won yet because we have identified a winner and we've reached out to them and I haven't talked to anybody yet this morning, so I haven't uh, validated that they're all good with that. But um, yeah, I mean, it was just another, another means of, of, um, you know, trying to, to get some impressions around the, the purchasing a season pass and, and motivate people to, uh, you know, to pull the trigger this year and, and, um, and raise their hand. And again, that along with the
1: cancellation policies we've, We reasoned that, you know, they would be two means of trying to get more people in the door. So the winner gets a 10-year season pass to JP, is that right? Right, right. 10 years of season passes, yeah. Incredible. That's even better than an Indy Pass. So it seems like you have the opposite problem of pretty much every other mountain in the Northeast here this year, Steve. So most of them are trying to figure out how to slim down capacity. Vail is requiring reservations for every day of skiing. Uh, Altera is suspending all walk-up lift ticket sales. Killington is requiring reservations for parking. You, on the other hand, are expecting far fewer guests because of the Canadian border closure and some of the other closures you've alluded to. Uh, You still plan to sell walk-up lift tickets. You've told skiers to expect room to roam. Um, How big of a hit to skier volume do you expect, and and what are you doing to mitigate that?
0: Well, you know, that's a great uh, $60,000 question. Um, You know, 50%, maybe. I mean, that's, you know, we're predicating top-line revenue budgets, uh and forecasting those out right now and we're pinning that number at 50 percent but i mean it's your guess is as good as mine we've got half of our audience that physically can't get here and then of the other half we've got 30 to 40 percent that need to have these uh two-week quarantines in place or seven seven day quarantine plus a negative test in place before they um should be coming to the mountain um I just, you know, knowing that reality, I didn't see the need to create any artificial scarcity further to that. The way that some of the some of the mid-state resorts have done, Um, you know, and really, if you're a Vermont resort, you know, it's tough to create an argument to create that additional scarcity unless you have you have it on good record that the folks coming into the state are going to patently ignore the, the travel guidance, which, you know, obviously there are some people that will try to game the system, but we're we're certainly hoping that doesn't happen and we're going to do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen this uh, this far north, you know. So um, I think what we're just trying to do at this point is to manage our, you know, for the season, we're trying to manage our expense and labor numbers in a way that that, um, that takes into consideration how much
1: less revenue we're going to be putting up. And then it becomes a question of what can you cut, right? Because there's certain things like you can't operate a lift with fewer people, right? Um, you know, you can't operate the shuttle with fewer people. You, you need, you need a set number of people. So how do you approach that problem? Where have you been able to identify areas where you could cut down on that labor and the number of people needed just to run JP on a day-to-day basis?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, obviously with a campus, that's this big and this involved, there are tons of fixed costs, right? Buildings like to breathe, so you want to make sure that you have bodies in there that are regulating temperatures, water flow, things like that, energy use. But you try to find out, you, you know, we've got, this is the largest uh, lodging uh, facility that, that I know of, and in, in, uh, certainly in Vermont, but maybe one of the biggest in all of New England with almost a 1,000 rentable rooms here. So you, you say to yourself, you know, with that much of your destination business cut off, which buildings do you need? to rent, to have available to rent, and which ones can you plan on, you know, for the most part shutting down, saving on labor, saving on utility use, and then only bring those back into the mix once your lodging compression suggests that you need that space, right? We've got 11 restaurants or eateries on campus. Do you need that many for half the traffic, or can you, you know, intelligently uh, trim that back and then put some on the shelf for when and if? You know the numbers react better than what we think they're going to do. You know we've got um, you know four or five full-service sit-down restaurants that we're going to cut back to one, plus a a fully realized uh, delivery and to-go food service system that we're going to run out of uh, out of one of our restaurants, so that we'll be literally bringing those same dinners right to uh, right to folks' uh, condos and and hotel rooms. You know, and then you look at things like clips and reels, our indoor climbing. Uh, and movie facility that given some of the some of the state guidance that we 've seen you know the, the the gymnastics that we would have to perform to get that place to run in a safe uh manner and in in accordance with with state guidelines just doesn 't make sense for us to run that so we 're going have to we're going have to cut that back as well you know there 's a thousand different pieces that you know if you can save a bit here and there really start to contribute on a on a more macro look at things.
1: According to a powder magazine article I was reading and preparing for this interview, it looks like you can fill in at the pizza shop if you need a little extra labor down there. <laughs> oh, it's going to
0: happen whether we need labor or not I'm gonna, I'll be
1: down there for sure so so you you still do that. you still cook pizzas on on the weekends
0: uh i I was there every Friday night through the summer we'd had an outdoor pizza oven that we bought a few years ago that we set up down the golf shop and you know i had our entire senior team waiting tables because we we really couldn't afford the variable labor so i uh, we had uh, the senior team waiting tables acting as bartenders and the, the vice president of food and beverage and i worked uh... the pizza oven every friday and then i'll probably be doing the same thing every saturday it's more to it's more to get me uh... ready for my next career <laughs> when this thing finally <laughs> was <this> gas
1: <laughs> It's the spirit of a true independent mountain there, Steve. So business wise, this is not ideal, obviously. But, you know, given what everyone else is going through, turning their operations upside down to accommodate social distancing, does this reduced anticipated reduced volume in some ways make your life a little bit easier because you don't quite have to modify everything to accommodate your normal volume?
0: Well, from the yeah, I mean, from the scarcity issue, the, the, what it what it allows us to do is to not worry about things like reservations or the elimination of day sales. I mean, that's really the only thing it changes from a safety perspective. I mean, even at a um, even at, at reduced volume here, we're going to still need to to do things like make sure that there are folks wearing masks and that there's physical distance and that you know wellness stations are are stocked and, 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 uh, and available everywhere. We've built, you know, we built this Everclean program, which is a safety and wellness guideline that we built back in April to help get us through the, through the summer and fall and winter. We kind of built that plan. And part of that plan is to have, you know, 15 or 20, what we're calling wellness ambassadors that are part of a team, uh, that are going to be on each side of the resort, literally roaming, uh, the lift queues, the base lodges, the common areas, the lobbies, the restaurants, making sure that that people are both understand the guidelines and and are following the guidelines. we feel like the best way to to get our group our our guests paying attention there is to honestly hold them accountable um, by having these face to face interactions and it's not a you know it's not a militia group certainly but it's uh it's 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 putting a face. To the, uh, to the guidelines, and simply what we don't want to do is to create these protocols and just let them live on our website and hope that guests walk into them and then hope that they pay attention to them because you know, you know as well as I do, hope, that uh, hope doesn't, it's not a strategy, it's not going to work that way, so we're going we're gonna to try to get out in front of that. So, so there's still a lot of energy being put into safety and wellness, even though that scarcity uh, isn't part of that strategy for us.
1: So, take us through the high level overview here of what will be different when skiers show up this year lodges, ski schools, rentals, parking shuttles, hotels, and condos. What's the thirty second sixty second overview
0: Well, like I said before there's gonna be there's gonna be fewer uh rooms available to rent initially there will be um maybe two or three restaurants that we decide to either not open or only run during high compression um Ski and ride school is going to be limited to folks who can load chairs themselves um, in any of our group lessons. And other than that, it's privates only. Uh, there's no indoor climbing or movies. We're going to close a few of our grab-and-go coffee shops just because, um, you know, the way that the queues and the lineups work will probably create too much congestion, so we're not going to deal with that. There's, there's going to be base lodge limits. Those are going to come out in the next two days, uh, give or take, from the state. Uh we've we've upgraded all of our point of sale systems to being touchless. Um and we've got a we've got a project that we're probably fifty percent of the way through where we're putting in a um about a six hundred thousand VTU fire pit uh, right at the um at the tram load area where we've put up a bunch of glass windscreens around that, some composite seating. We've put in a, a food truck there that's gonna be serving uh steak and cheese and Jameson's and coffee in the morning. Right. um so to try to create a little bit of food and beverage spread i mean you've been to jay there's not a mm-hmm. there's not a hell of a lot that you're going to be able to do with creating al fresco dining out there when it's 20 below and blowing <laughs> at 80 miles an hour so right um, there'll be a little bit of that out there so that we'll get some of the shoulder days where maybe if it was a little bit too cold to be outside these these heaters and this seating and this uh this food truck will help uh maybe move some folks outside we're thinking of having the same strategy over on stateside we're putting in some fire pits there. So um, that's that's it from an operational perspective, though.
1: So as far as the tram goes, I think that's probably what most folks are curious about. It did run this fall and you said you plan to run it this winter. Um, I hosted John DeVivo, uh, Cannon Mountain GM last week on the podcast, and he said he wasn't likely to run their tram during the first half of the season. However, um, they have redundant lifts to the summit. So where's your head at with the tram and how you run that thing safely?
0: Well, again, that one, that's another one that will be connected back to what the state allows in terms of uphill capacity, which they should be releasing here in the next couple of days. But my, my guess is that uh, the tram will run at this point. Uh, it will probably only run on the higher compression days of of uh, the weekends and holidays, and if I believe the guidance that the state is is conjuring up and is going to release, then my guess is that we will probably limit the tram to multiple person groups. Right, so you won't be able to be a single person to even get and get on the tram. You're going to have to be in cohorts of of two or three because you know the guidance is going to is going to mandate that if you have folks outside of the your family or specific traveling party, then they need to have six feet of separation. And doing the geometry on that thing, of which I was an English major, so thank God that we have people here that that understand math better than I do. Um, The geometry says that you can can do cohorts of three or four and still get about 12 people on the tram, which I think, again, at this point, it looks like the math is going to bear out that we can do a dozen people on the tram. You know, and that's down from 60. Which was is cut in half down to to thirty or thirty five last year, which is going to be cut down again uh, for this year. Mm-hmm. So it, it probably won't make sense to run that thing every single day of the week because compression is likely to be low midweek. But you know, weekends we'll have the ability to to put people on there safely.
1: And if folks want to hike up from the top of Flyer, can they do that?
0: Go yeah, go nuts. We'll probably set up a, a hiking route up there so that people can do that and. Depending upon your uh your your level of shape, you can probably get that done in in ten or fifteen minutes.
1: Nice. Um, any protocols around your other lifts, such as only allowing related parties to ride together?
0: yeah again that's that's probably what's going to come back from the state is that um you know you've got members of the same household uh or traveling party or six feet of distance is required so we'll have all of that once we get that guidance it'll be posted everywhere on our site and our lift queues um and we'll manage that accordingly you know this like everybody else we don't have a huge concern about you know the ability for this stuff to spread outside when you're on a lift on a 12 minute ride with your face covered and the wind in your face but you know we're going to do whatever it is the state tells us to do and and we'll be as safe as we possibly can
1: Yeah, New York dropped their guidelines yesterday, and that's exactly what they were. It's ride the lift with people you came with, um, which is what a lot of mountains are already planning to do. So it it seems likely that Vermont would do something similar. Yeah. So I want to go back to the shutdown here. Jay was the first large mountain in the Northeast to shut down specifically to help stop the spread of COVID-19. You did that on Friday, March 13th, which was just one day after Berkshire East and Catamount down in Massachusetts shut the doors when did you start thinking about shutting down and what ultimately pushed you to to do it? Um, I think this is probably the first
0: place I've ever talked about this. Um, I was actually, at this point, I was living at the mountain and, you know, I had a conversation with uh, Mike Solomano, who was a good friend of mine the night before, um, the middle of the week that week. And he was telling me what, what he and powder were going through. And, um, you know one of the things that's missing in this cb5 management environment is there really is no um nobody to, to to bounce things up or off of right you've got to kind of make these decisions in a little bit of a vacuum here so it was nice to talk with mike and i could sort of sense where you know he was headed and you know some of the other my other colleagues in the in the industry started to have these expectations and and about what might happen as well and then that uh, thursday morning I sat down here and because we had the big Ontario break check-in happening Friday night, right? Mm-hmm. We had what was probably going to be, you know, eight thousand people here for the course of, of the next seven to ten days. So I sat down and tried. To, what we were doing is we had we had a little bit of roll-up, right? The the news in the U.S. relative to to COVID was that it was making its way here from Europe, and we had a look at what was happening over there. So we started to to put some of those protective policies in place. So I, I sat down and started saying, all right, what you know, what can we do here to make sure that we're doing our part to keep people safe? And I was, you know, on paper at least, it was closing this and trimming that and reducing hours over here and eliminating that altogether. And at some point, I you know, just put my pen down and said, we've we've ripped this place back to the studs. What is it that we're really offering for this Ontario break? A group that's paying a, a, a fair dollar on their for their vacation their once a year vacation what was what was it going to be like for these folks um so at that point I just said this just doesn't make a lot of sense um and I got together as a, a senior team and I put it on the table and just said what does everybody think it's my uh I I, I sort of didn't put out there my opinion on it but I laid out the what we knew scenarios. Um and to a person we all sort of voted to say, let's let's shut this down. This just doesn't make a lot of sense for us. So you know, at that point I called up, you know, the receiver, we had a conversation, um, and you know, his concern at that point was just you know mitigating losses and he's you know, operationally he's like, Do what you want. Um and then I had uh, had a phone call with Kelly Pollack at NSA, Molly Mahar here at uh, at DSA, the president of the Vermont Ski Area Association. And then we talked with uh, the governor and his team just to let them know. Because I knew without question that once this this domino fell, the rest were going to drop. I mean, I was having conversations with Molly where, you know, these conversations were happening at, at every ski resort in the state, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So after that, you know, we made that announcement to w- – what we wanted to do was to get it in the head of Ontarians before they drove here. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a seven hour drive. We didn't want people driving right. from Toronto if we knew we were going to put the brakes on it on Sunday. So we we got that out in time to uh, to, you know, convince enough of the Ontarians to stay home. There are some that still made it up here and decided to ski the weekend. And then and we just got we spent the next two weeks getting into the accounting of returning everybody's money, which is a lot yeah, less fun than it
1: sounds. <laughs> You know, sitting here talking about this seven months later, it makes sense. Uh, it was the right thing to do, and and everyone followed you pretty shortly thereafter. Uh, but did you take a hit for that at the time?
0: <laughs> yeah, we got we got hit for sure, and and you know, as expected, you get hit from those closest to you, right? We had some mm-hmm. some homeowners who didn't agree with it. Um, you know, politics were were starting to creep into those conversations already at that point. Um, so, and uh, you know I'll never forget that it was this saturday uh Saturday night we had made the um the announcement and it was Saturday night, and I got a call from um I forget who I got the call from, letting me know that uh that vale had decided to shut it down, and then very quickly after that powder made that uh powder made the made the decision to shut things down so it sort of validated us at this point didn't make us feel much better to be honest with you but it was good to know that uh, that we had made the right decision about getting a jump on this
1: when you went full shutdown if i'm remembering this correctly most of the other larger mountain groups framed it as a pause in operations and there was question into may as to whether killington would reopen but you were like no this thing is shut for the season go home Uh, why did you know that was the right thing to do it i didn't
0: you know i just it felt to me like the narrative was getting bigger and louder and there was no nothing if you used europe as a you know a litmus test for how things moved and certainly in in hindsight you know that's exactly what the what the us has has uh, looked at um there was no reason to suggest that this was just going to be a pause at least in our minds it wasn't and you know if we were going to go through this process of Shutting down, taking the hits that we took, refunding, you know, w- you know what would have been, you know, a million, million and a half dollar top line revenue week for us. Um, if we were going to go through that effort, then the likelihood was was such that we weren't going to to reopen. There would have to be an awful lot of positive news that suggested that we were able to to open back up again. We just didn't see it at that point.
1: So you had a hard time getting the message across to a certain group of people. Um, you have some very dedicated uphillers up there, uh, and they kept trying to go up the mountain. And I believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you ended up blocking off the access road. So take us into that a little. How determined were folks to keep skiing, and how difficult was it to get them to take the shutdown seriously?
0: Well, they were they were pretty determined. And again, like six or seven months ago, it was a whole different uh, world of what do people think is happening, what do they know is happening, w- what sorts of things uh can you can you do safely and what can't you do safely. I mean, for me, it, it dialed back to, listen, I, I understand that people like to get outside and they like to skin and that, you know, being outside and skiing is one of the lower risk activities that you can do, um, but at, at that point, for me, it was about you putting yourself at risk is a decision that you make but the the reality that i would have to dispatch patrol to save your ass if you got into trouble that was my decision and i wasn't willing to do that i mean even though you know you might post that you know you know the skin our tracks aren't aren't uh monitored or managed and if you get hurt you're on your own the reality is is we have patrol here every day and if we got record that somebody was hurt out there we'd have to dispatch somebody i just it didn't make a lot of sense to put, put our, our guys and our women at risk for a decision that somebody else made to try to go and enjoy themselves. And I think eventually people got that and it dialed back.
1: So you had plenty to deal with at the mountain. You had a whole group of J one workers from Argentina, Jamaica, and Peru who ended up stuck there for several weeks. Uh, tell us that story, Steve, why were they stuck there and were you able to ultimately help them get home?
0: Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, uh, Especially the Peruvians, their their country shut down, so they wouldn't they wouldn't accept them. So, I mean, they were teammates. So you do what you have to do for any teammate. We we um, we have a space off campus where there's more of a. It's not sort of communal housing, but it's a the Inglenook Lodge, the old Inglenook Lodge, which was had a big, massive common. Uh, living room area and then bedrooms sort of off of that living area and that's where they they we house a lot of the um, our our foreign teammates but we pulled them up because that communal piece was starting to make us a little bit nervous and we put them in in doubles in our brand new employee housing up here um, we fed them we tried to get them outside we had some of our folks planning hikes for them and, and we paddled with them on some on some river and canoe trips with them just um, sort of put our arms around them and these it's easy to to remember, uh, to forget that these kids are kids, right? They're, in some cases, 18-, 19-, 20-year-olds, and they were freaked out, too. I mean, they had already been away from their family, some of them for the first time, for five or six months, and then this happened. So they were they were pretty well freaked out. So we we had um, we did what we can for them. We kept them here for, you know, this happened in March. A lot of them didn't get home until August, uh, beginning at the uh, end of July, when we got the last ones out. So, um yeah that was quite an experience.
1: Nice. So glad you were able to help those folks get home. So I want to shift here and talk about receivership, which you've mentioned a few times. So for those that aren't familiar, since an EB5 scandal broke in 2016, oversight of the resort shifted from Ariel Kros and Bill Stenger to a court appointed receiver, Michael Goldberg. Take us back to that time, Steve. How did you find out all this was going down? And what was your reaction when you heard?
0: Yeah, I mean, so many people talk about that day, and I've talked so much about that day. You know, the piece that doesn't get covered a lot is the lead up to that day. I mean, we were, the team here was finding out a lot about what was happening with the case from the papers, right? So that created, as you can imagine, that created a lot of um, nervousness around here. What's real? What's imagined? What's the future really going to look like? And it sort of... You know, it capped on that that day back in in April of 2016, and I was heading out of my office here to my to go watch my daughter run in a track meet down in Burlington. And you know, these uh, black Escalades pull up, and some guy walked up to the front, walked right past me, and said, "Hey, are you, Bill Stenger?" And I said, "No, he's inside." And I went to continue to my car. He goes, "Why don't you come with me?" <laughs> you know, oh. not, uh you know, at first you see these Escalades and you say to yourself, that's more investors because, you know, for a period of five or six years, we had investors coming through to kick the tires on this place uh, every day of the week. And everybody had mm-hmm. dark suits and uh, and Escalades. But, you know, when this guy said, why don't you come with me, I sort of used my reasoning skills to realize that it wasn't an investor. And uh, <laughs> um, I should listen to him. So we went inside. They explained they were attorneys from the SEC and for everyone to go back to their offices and uh, keep your hands on the desk. So we did that, and um, we had folks come in. We turned in our our, um, company-issued cell phones. We turned our computers over, Um, and the the lead, I think, um, the lead attorney came into my office and asked me what I did, and at the time I was... Um, about ready to to jump into a GM role, even at that point. But at that point, I was Mm. the chief marketing officer, and um, he said, Do you have a copy of the org chart? So I took one out from under my blotter, I showed it to him. He showed, he looked at where I was on it, and he said, Okay, you're in charge. (laughs) So (laughs) at that point, at that point, he (laughs) asked me to get the rest of the staff together. So I I went and got everybody together. We downloaded, and then the next two weeks was really a kind of a blur with the, The governor getting involved and michael goldberg getting involved and and you know at that point i don't know if you remember that but we needed about six million dollars for tram upgrades at that point so we were still trying to figure out how the funding was going to happen for that and Mm -hmm. and you know we were dealing with i I was we were about to host about 70 weddings that summer so we had the fathers and mothers of brides and brides themselves calling us off the hook um, trying to trying to get their heads around what was going to happen for that we had a a huge piece of a million dollar piece of conference business that was supposed to land that year in may from the Porsche club in North America. And they wanted to be, they wanted to be soothed as well that their big annual event was still going to be able to go off. So that's, that's pretty much that day in a, or that week or so in a, in a nutshell.
1: And as you continued on and figured out which way was up and, and met your new owner or, or receiver, however you frame it, was there ever a chance that the mountain would shut down while Mike Goldberg worked through the sale?
0: No, I mean I think he really he realized very quickly that there was a a a, a viable business model here, and that it made sense from a here's what we bring in, here's what we spend to bring it in um, accounting analysis. Right, there was all of this investor universe around it that was going to need to be extricated from how we how we run the business and how we account for the running of the business. So I think very quickly he realized that. Plus, you know, he's he's an attorney, but he's also a businessman. I think he understands that a an operating asset is liable to throw a much higher value than one that, you know, has a fence around it.
1: So you've been GM for four years now, probably longer than anyone would have thought you'd be in receivership. But To your credit, I think any casual skier who doesn't follow the news and follow the headlines, I don't think they would have noticed anything different, which is great. But can you speak to the challenges of operating in this environment of uncertainty for years and years?
0: Yeah, I I think that operating um, folks not being able to tell a difference is more of a testament to to Bill Stenger and what he did here um, from a management psychology than it it is anything that I've done. I've just pretty much continued to to run the place the way it was always run so it's it's certainly nothing that i did or nor anything i'd take credit for but i mean the the challenge going forward is really you know the only challenge really is from the absence of a of a long-term funding mechanism perspective right we have plenty of liquidity to keep going as a business but you want to do more than just keep going right you want to refine the experience you want to put more opportunities in, in front of your team and you want to you want to grow responsibly um we're in sort of a kind of a self-induced limbo at this point. But between uh, 2006 and 2016, we got more growth than, than you know what to do with and likely more growth than, than many folks who work in this business experience in a, in a career. So I'm not going to complain about a lack of growth too much. Um, still, having, having a, a new ownership structure that's capitalized to support sort of operational refinements is going to be uh, an important step for us.
1: So you're actually in a pretty good place. As you mentioned, there was a period of rapid growth at Jay prior to when you took over. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think folks who, if you haven't been to Jay Peak in 15 years or so, you're going to have a surprise when you show up. So give us the overview of, of all the change that's taken place in the last 10, 15 years.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've added, you know, when I first started here in 2004, um, you know, we had one hotel, we had some condos. But since then, we've added three full-service hotels and another 300 condos. Uh, on top of that, you know, a 60,000-square-foot indoor water park, uh, and an NHL-sized ice arena, a championship golf course, two artificial turf recreation fields, um, a bunch of restaurants, an indoor climbing facility, um, you know, conference and wedding business that never really existed here um, to any great shake, um, so yeah, from a if you haven't been here in a while, you you drive by and you say what in the hell happened to JP? But even even me who you know I drove by this same campus every single day uh, you know for the last 17 years. There wasn't a day that went by where I didn't just look around at the the equipment and the growth and the buildings uh, and and the and the and the teammates. Right? I mean, we went from you know having having 250 people be able to run this resort on a on a on a fully uh, a fully operational basis to 1,500. You know, we had, you know, when I first started here, we had less than 60 full-time year-round people. Now we have 600. So it's, you know, there's the, the the changes are both massive and small. And and for even for folks who look at it every day, it doesn't go unnoticed.
1: And do you think that was the right direction for JP to add all these ancillary businesses?
0: Well, I mean, i it's tough. It's tough to comment on that, you know, because I was inside so much of it. And I know what drove a lot of this. A lot of this was driven as a result of the, the want and the need uh, for job creation. And if you look at it purely through that lens, through that lens of did we succeed in creating jobs in what is, you know, the poorest county in the state of Vermont, traditionally the highest uh, unemployment rate here, Um, If you look at it through just that job creation lens, then, yeah, it it was successful. You know, the path that we took to get here, uh, there's some questions surrounding for sure, um, and it's fair to question that. Um, But, you know, the seasonality of our business has been been forever changed, right? I mean, we used to rely on a certain index of lift ticket sales and winter business to account for our top and bottom line – top line revenue and bottom line EBITDA, and that percentage has gone down as a result of building out those periods between May and November. And that will continue to happen to the extent that we get into, you know, this um, athletic field market where lacrosse and field hockey and soccer teams come up here and train. And to the extent that we continue to use our rink during those shoulder periods and that weddings and conferences continue to continue to grow during those shoulder seasons, um, we will take – the threat of our business down from the potential bad winters because we aren't relying on the winter as such a high index uh, for us to turn a profit.
1: Well, there's no question that whoever the next owner is, they're not just getting a ski area, they're getting a full service resort. So let's talk about that sale a little bit. The mountain has been for sale since the beginning of 2019. You've had some interest, including from Altera. What can you tell us about where you are in the sales process?
0: Yeah, I mean, we were talking about uh, pauses before, right, pauses in business. I mean, there there was, you know, for us as it related to operations during COVID, we didn't pause. We, you know, intentionally shut things down. But the, the process of the sale was much more of a conscious pause. I mean, we had just too many other things uh, for other hospitality and, and tourism-based business to be grinding on, you know, to the extent that this new owner – Whoever it is, wherever they are, is in the hospitality and tourism business. They had other things to to focus on, for sure. So it, it has been a it has been a pause, um, but we expect that that interest to pick up against uh, pick up again once uh, once people get their arms around uh, what's happening with it with the uh, with COVID.
1: Is there anything at all you can tell us about the potential buyers?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously in a in a tough spot with talking about buyers. I would say that. You know, I specifically have toured several dozen different outfits across the campus. Um, about a dozen of them got into high-level discussions of numbers, and maybe another half dozen made made multiple trips and multiple meetings and passes through our numbers. But the the diligence process is underway, however paused it might be at this point, And I'll expect it 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 will pick up again, um, like I said, once we get uh, we get things going.
1: Given the, the kind of structure of this, and I don't want to get too much into the EB five thing because every time I try to talk about it, my brain turns into scrambled eggs. But is this a matter of highest bidder wins because you have to pay back so many folks?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously there's an element to to that, right? Because the receiver's first responsibility is back to the investors to get the highest the highest um, you know return that he can for that cohort. But there's also a responsibility that he has to the best use of the property, right? Because, you know, those 1,500 jobs that were created, if somebody came in and said, and this is just a for instance, for the love of God, this hasn't really happened. But if somebody came in and said, we want to turn the entire place into a parking lot because we think that the return on investment is the highest possible uh, use we could get back for these investors, the receiver would probably step in and say, regardless of what the net on this is, it just doesn't make sense because it would wipe out 1,500 jobs so that there's a, there really is there really is a relationship between highest net return and best use of the property
1: so you had some early non-binding offers came in a little lower than expected around 70 million and jay is now challenging its 121 million dollar assessment with the town of jay what was the thinking behind the attempts to lower the assessment and where are you at in that process
0: yeah, well, those, the the two realities of, you know, challenging the assessment and initial non-binding offers really aren't connected, right? We've been, you know, uh, I won't use the word arguing. We've been discussing the town valuation for a few years, and we've recently just put together a more, a more formal plan to, to go through the entire process. I mean, whatever offers came through are first-round offers, which by their definition aren't the numbers you ever really land at. Um, the attempts at, at lowering the assessment are more predicated on market realities, um, the realities of our business, and a formula of valuation that takes into consideration things like business performance, raw asset value, and, and the relationship between the two. We're, in my estimation, we're not going to end up at the valuation we're at right now, but it's a, it's a process, and we'll end up going through it.
1: So one of the things that new owners always worry about with ski resorts is deferred maintenance, or, or you know, big upgrades that are needed. So if a potential owner is asking you for your upgrade wish list, uh, what do you tell them? Oh,
0: well, um, I mean, there's a couple of things. I don't know that I would put these in any particular order, or maybe I would, but, um, you know, obviously replacing the Bonnie, which is something that we've considered in the past, um, where we take the top terminal a little bit higher, and, and we'd probably do some upgrades to the lower Northway trail at the same time. Um, we probably would recommend replacing the jet at some point with a, with probably a fixed quad, although, you know, that, that lifted the tank. Um, so I'm knocking on wood here as I even talk about the potential for replacing that because I don't want to offend it. Um, but then, <laughs> and then it, probably get a, get access to a new water supply for snowmaking and expand, um, expand our system. Um. You know, we've got a need for a new welcome center and a new a new admin setup that's not going to throw any top line. So that would probably be a little bit further down the list.
1: How about the tram? You, you happy with the tram? The condition of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's in good shape. We've put a we've put an awful lot of money into that uh, into that uh, in the last five years. We did a major upgrade in sixteen with when we upgraded the motor and, and replaced the hangers and the carriages and the braking systems and then. A um, year after that, we replaced all the electronic controls, all the safety systems. Um, some of the cables are going to be due for replacement starting in a few years, um, but I don't see any other pending major upgrades necessary for the next five to ten after that. I mean, if you had asked me if I was building a ski resort from scratch, would I include a 60-passenger a tram as your only way to the top? Probably not, but you know, I don't have that luxury, unfortunately
1: has has covid made you reconsider not having redundancy to the top is that something you would propose to new owners if they gave you a capital budget
0: yeah i mean if if there was a way that engineers could figure out a way to have another unload up there on, on an extraordinary limited physical space um certainly it would be interesting i mean there's only a couple of ways off the summit that the majority of guests can use so really there's there's two concerns up there there's there's like i said a limited space available for another unload um for both a lift terminal and people. Uh, But the majority of the train up there is advanced and expert, and it doesn't really serve a a large index of the market. So um, I guess as a long-term consideration, the tram could actually be replaced at some point with a gondola that operates at a limited uphill capacity. But, boy, that feels like a million miles away.
1: Yeah, (laughs) that'd be exciting. All right, last question for you here, Steve. Uh, There has been a, a West Bowl expansion proposed in the past. Could we ever see that?
0: Well, I mean I've if anything I've learned the last six years here, I don't usually say never to anything, but but you know, when we really you know, after two thousand and sixteen we still had some projects, right, from E B five to to um to execute and, and to finish. And and the conversation about West Bowl came up and we did a little bit of feasibility on that, which really hadn't been done in any meaningful way prior to that. And it's just just to get utilities out to that area is um you know, you're getting into you're getting into eight digit country and that's before that's before you even have a product out there i mean that's just that's just uh, you know utilities power water that sort of thing so somebody would need to really really do an roi calc against the spend and to figure out how it is that you're going to get your money back because with with um without utilities out there it becomes a it becomes a difficult calculation to to really uh, to really get your money back, and we haven't found a path to get to get utilities out for for much less than, like I said, those those eight digits.
1: Well, l- luckily for the world, uh, Jay already has more than most of us can handle. So I th- I think you're you're doing pretty good with what you have. Well, Steve, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. I know it's a huge news day. I will give you your morning back, but thank you so much. You got yeah. it, Stu. It was good talking to you that's steve wright president and general manager of jpeak he's done an incredible job in increasingly difficult circumstances and we should all be grateful for the job he's doing in keeping the lift spinning up there good work steve and thank you very much for that interview i'm so pumped about this indypass partnership sticking jpeak on that thing completely transforms the perception of that pass in the northeast and it's a really smart move to pick up some new business when COVID crushed the borders that you normally rely on. Thank you all very much for listening. Hey, if you subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter, then you heard about the JP Candy Pass partnership before anyone else. The newsletter moves ahead of everything. Anything I do appears there before it hits iTunes, Spotify, Twitter, Facebook, or any other platform. So even if you follow the journal and podcast elsewhere, sign up for the newsletter. It's free and it's awesome. You can do that at skiing.substack.com. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing
0: Podcast is a Quicksilver Films
1: production.